Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome back to another episode of the Draft Time Show here on the Voice of Islam. On a Friday afternoon today, with myself Raza and Brother Daniel, over the next two hours we'll be with you, speaking about two topics as usual. In the first half of the program, we're going to take a look at elections, which to, to the year 2024 is the biggest election year globally, and we're going to take a look at some of the elections that are happening around the world. As always, if you want to um, have your say, if you want to join the conversation, you can do so on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. And in the second half of the program, we're going to speak about Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed. May Allah be pleased with him, the second Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised reformer, and his service to Islam and his service to serving humanity. All of that coming up in the next half of the program. Brother Daniel, assalamu alaikum to you as well. Wa alaikum assalam. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. How are you doing? How is your week? Alhamdulillah. God is great. The week so far, it's always a good sign to be on a Friday. <laughs> you know, the week is done. The yes. weekend is coming up. But before we start now, as you've been following the Drive Time show here on the last uh, couple of weeks, we want to give you some sort of update, a little bit of a recap, some reflections on what is going on in Palestine at the moment. There has been some development this week, hasn't it? Yes, so I think um, all eyes now are on um, Rafah and what's going to happen in Rafah. Israeli President, um, uh, Prime Minister, beg your pardon, Netanyahu, has announced that he will um, uh, launch a ground offensive in Rafah. So it remains to be seen. <laughs> a lot of countries, including the UK, have expressed their concern on such an operation, the United Nations humanitarian chief, Martin Griffiths, um, has actually issued a dire warning about the consequences of an Israeli ground assault on Rafah, which is the um, southernmost city in Gaza. Uh, just uh, in terms of context, um, Gaza is, uh, as everybody knows uh, now, is a strip. And when Israel launched its uh, offensive after the October 7th attacks. Um, all the people living in the north were asked to go to the middle of the territory, which is a place called Khan Yunus. And uh, most people did relocate uh, and became refugees there, and then Khan Yunus was bombed. And then um, uh, Rafah was declared as a safe zone. Um, and then now Rafa has been announced as um, as the next area where Israeli army wants to launch a ground offensive. It also, I think, uh, needs to be said that while the ground offensive has yet to be launched, there is no let up in terms of the airstrikes in Rafa, mm. that those are still happening. And hundreds uh, of people have lost their lives in the last uh, only couple of weeks uh, as a result of those strikes, uh, many of them uh, innocent women and little children. Um, so it's, uh, it, yeah, it's uh, it's a humanitarian disaster, as many, uh, humanitarian disaster in the waiting. As many people have said, uh, David Cameron, our own um, uh, foreign secretary over here has also expressed concern, United States. But then, um, you know, if you go back to what, um, or if you refer to what His Holiness, Hazrat Mr. Masoor Ahmed, mm -hmm. may Allah be his helper, uh, mentioned in his Friday sermon today. Yeah. You know, these, um, everybody seems to be expressing concern, but when it comes to official Israeli policy, 
everybody seems to uh, say yes to that, and 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 there are hardly any qualms. They you know they they just they just oohs and arms literally. And uh, when it comes to taking concrete action against Israel. Um, like some of the government's acts have actually taken. So, for example, Spain has announced that they will not uh, uh, send any more weapons yeah. to Israel and they will Spare not be... parts. Uh, exactly. And they will not become part of um, uh, uh, this plausible genocide, as uh, the International Court of Justice uh, said. So, yeah, uh, unfortunately, not good news uh, uh, from Palestine, uh, from uh, Gaza in particular, but uh, I think it remains to be seen what happens there, especially in terms of the ground offensive. Yeah. Egypt has announced that it will suspend its um, uh, its its ground um, it, its uh, peace treaty with uh, with Israel if a ground offensive is launched. Hamas has announced that uh, it will blow the entire blow up the entire peace process and. Uh, there will not be any um, even negotiations for about hostages if Israel launches that attack. So, yeah, I think a lot's at stake. Another week of just mere talk, as you mentioned, a lot of uh, condemnation, not even condemnation, uh, um, expression of we're very concerned and a lot of uh, um, statements. Lips, a lot of lip service, lip service as well. Yes. Yeah. A lot of uh, statements. Uh, Australian uh, Prime Minister mm. Justin Trudeau as well, New Zealand, who have expressed way too little, way too late. And I think the world has come to a point where you recognize that a monster has been created which cannot be controlled anymore. And uh, I mean, as his holiness mentioned, they're very blatant about it. They're very open about it that you can do whatever you want. We'll go ahead with the plan that we have in mind. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of us. And social media is blowing up as mm -hmm. it was in the last weeks. But in all of this, what what I fail to understand is literally the the lack of empathy, the lack of humanity, just the, the pure evil in people and not really thinking about not really giving any thought whatsoever to to the innocent people that are mm. that are being I think this pushed into has, this corner has actually exposed the reality of a lot of people yeah it has and um i, I, I think uh, uh, the, the covers are off now it, it's 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 unfiltered everything yeah. is unfiltered and nobody really cares anymore yeah anyway so justice and peace go in hand that's that's something that not only this conflict but a lot of other conflicts have told us have shown us you can't have one without the other if there is justice the results will be equality will be respect will be acceptance which is why we need more unity and diversity in today's day and age than ever before and in order to establish and guarantee international peace it is essential to first ensure that those in power are working towards a shared goal of the betterment of humanity here in the uk this is a such a sensitive topic and i think it will decide who is going to come on top if your foreign policy, specifically in regards, in regards to the Middle East conflict and your pol Palestine policy, is in place or not. Labour had a, a very tough week, to, to be honest, not even a tough week the last couple of months, which made a lot of staunch Labour voters um, alienate themselves from 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 the party, from from the manifesto, from from the policies that they have uh, um, brought out. Is spe spe specifically the uh, statements of uh, Keir Starmer, and as I said, with elections happening at a global level, the need for justice and suitable leadership is more important than ever. Just to give you 
an overview, more than 60 countries in the world, which is a total of 4 billion of the world's population, will be having their elections this year. So whether that's Indonesia's presidential poll, which is also the world's largest single-day vote, or India's multi-day legislative uh, elections, again, one of the largest in the world, or even small countries such as North Macedonia's presidential elections, the world has prepared itself for the voting. And that is something that we're going to be speaking about in today's program. Joining us uh, um, in this part of the program is our first guest for today. He's the CEO of the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, Anthony Smith. Uh, Anthony Smith is with us on the line. Anthony, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's great to, to be part of your program. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, now, Anthony, how do you view what is happening in the world today when we speak about international elections, when we speak about elections around the world, as I mentioned, more than 60 60 countries are having their elections this year from big countries to small countries. How important is foreign policy for a country? I think you have to put yourself in the shoes of all of the people who are taking part of elections in all of these countries. It's not just the number of countries, but the population of those countries. I think you've mentioned some of them already. So more than half of the world's population, more than 4 billion people, will be voting uh, this year. Many have started voting. But if you are an individual voter, the things that are going to motivate how you vote and whether you vote will mostly be things that are related to uh, your everyday concerns. I think we see that in our own country uh, on the whole, uh, and we see it certainly in countries where cost of living issues, inflation, poverty are even more of a challenge for people living their everyday lives. They want a government that will solve their problems. So for many people, foreign policy issues will be important, But my guess is that for most people in their own local elections, they'll be looking at the things which will help them live the life that they want to in their own with their own families, be safe, be secure. Hmm. Now, the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, correct me if I'm wrong here, but your organization helps the UK democracy to grow stronger. Um, After having tested and tried democracy after having it in this country for such a long time, uh, also looking at the past and and the history of of different countries and their relationship with the democracy. Is that something that we still have to work towards in in, in growing and in, in supporting and making sure that, that, that it grows stronger day by day? Absolutely. Uh, our foundation was established about 30 years ago and we work in countries around the world to support their democracies. We don't actually have programs in the UK, but actually we learn from uh, the countries where we work in the rest of the world. The UK learns from them. The individuals that we work with, be they members of political parties in the UK, members of civil society organizations, that when they travel overseas or when they meet our visitors from the countries we work with, They're sharing lessons about challenges which every democracy in the world is facing at the moment, the issues that um, affect the way in which we engage with democratic institutions, the rise of social media, 
people's expectations are changing at the same time that problems are getting worse in many ways. Climate change is a huge issue. Conflict is affecting all of us, no matter where it's taken place. And those things make uh, solving our problems really hard for every democracy around the world. So we all have to learn. And I think I'd just challenge one thing, although by some measure the UK has been a democracy for a while, don't remember, don't forget, it's just over 100 years ago that women could not vote in this mm. country. A bit longer than that before, if you didn't own property, you couldn't vote. If you were Catholic, you couldn't vote. So, yeah, we've, we've come away, a, a but we've all got a long way to go still. Anthony, if I can ask you a slightly difficult question, and sorry to put you on the spot there. Um, uh, there is one view from the South, uh, which is that West is very selective about accepting democracy from the South uh, and only accepts democracy when the government suits them. So if you remember in the 90s, I think uh, uh, Tunisia um, elected a right-wing government and and they weren't allowed um, if um, a Taliban are uh, in power in Afghanistan and um, if there were elections, I don't think there have been elections, I don't think there can be elections in Afghanistan in the current circumstances, but if there were, um, hypothetically speaking, and Taliban won, um, uh, I can probably uh, you know, uh, go out on an anomaly limb and, and say that, they, that those uh, election results will not be accepted by many Western governments. What do you have to say about that? If, if democracy is uh, supposed to be a government of the people, by the people, for the people and for the people then and you also had the Putin interview where the Ukraine issue was raised as well yeah your I, thoughts uh, Anthony yeah I couldn't hear that last point about Putin but I'm, I'm happy to maybe come back to that at the end sure sure um, yeah I think that um, we are uh, in a world in which uh, no country is perfect and in which geopolitics in other words the powers that um, different countries seek to exercise internationally play a role. And that, that can sometimes be seen in the way that countries of the North or the West um, have relations with countries of the South or, or the East, but it also can be seen within regions. You know, within uh, Middle East, North Africa region, there are different views about uh, what the relationships will be between countries whatever the political system that's in place and whatever the specific election that's taken place. That happens all around the world. I, our perspective as an organization is trying to do a couple of things. One is to try and break the cycles of violence that happen in regions. That's a big issue for us, given what's going on in the Middle East. We have Palestinian staff, we have staff in countries in that region, and we know that their priority is to try to help societies to break the cycles of violence and to bring fairness and representation and justice in their societies. We know that in the uh, countries that we deal with in other parts of the world, in, within Europe, there are the same issues about how we manage to make transitions between one type of government and 
another type as democracy takes hold and other countries might not agree with that but i think the the general point that you're making you know there's there's an important point behind it if we're going to be supportive of democracy we have to be sh- clear that we're applying our principles fairly and uh, evenly around the world no matter who we're dealing with mm-hmm. every person has the right to participate in de- their own democracy and we have to respect that wherever they are in the world. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, in your opinion, then, how will uh, the upcoming election? This is uh, the year of elections, or the election year, as uh, as I think the Time magazine put it earlier this year. How important do you think some of these um, elections are, namely here in the in the UK? than in uh, India and also in the U.S.? Well, I think that um, the number of elections that are taking place this year means that there's going to be a lot of variety in their impact. There are countries where they're taking place where, to be honest, like Russia, especially on a day like today when we hear the news that Alexei Navalny has, has died, it's not going to make any change in in Russia. Uh, Putin will not be thrown out by uh, the electorate uh, when that happens. In other countries, the like Indonesia, which had its elections uh, this week, um, there is a transition uh, of peaceful transition of power going to take place, and we can have views about uh, the politics of the different candidates. But we know that that's a democratic choice which has been made by that country, the biggest uh, Muslim country in the world. Um, the U.S. and the U.K., uh, the, the main thing from my perspective, and I work in an organization which supports the practice of democracy, the main thing is that if voters want to throw out the person that's in power now, they can do that. And that's what an election is for. Countries where voting makes no difference are not democracies. So I don't know what the outcome of the elections in those in the United States and the United Kingdom will be, but I know that it will be an exercise in democracy in those countries. And the policies that the different governments follow, that's a different matter. That's something which uh, we all will have an opinion about. But the practice of democracy is what, what counts uh, from my perspective. Uh, let me be the, the, the devil's advocate and ask you the question literally opposite to what uh, that I asked earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the rise of the far right, so we have an extremely far right government in Israel. Um, uh, there is a far right government we know in India at this time, and it's, suppo- it's expected to win again. Um, we expect a Donald Trump. I don't know how you want to characterize him, but we, a lot of people expect him to win um, uh, this election as well. There have been uh, um, elections in South America and in Europe where far right um, has become very popular and has won indeed as well. Uh, what are your thoughts? How dangerous do you think that is? Yeah, I'm so sorry. The, some of the um, sound was breaking up there. But in I'm terms sorry. of what the, the actual outcome might be and uh, the su- possible success of far-right parties, I think there is an issue, uh, whether it be uh, far-right or arguably at the other extremity, far-left, there is an issue about uh, people who are trying to get into power 
using democratic methods and institutions like elections to gain power and then undermine the safeguards that allowed them to be elected. So we've seen that in some countries uh, around the world where there's been a lot of work to try and establish the principles of democracy and the practices of democracy, making sure that everyone has the right to, to run for office, to campaign. And then once those uh, people get into power, they pull the drawbridge up behind them. They attack the media, they attack the judiciary, uh, they restrict voting, they restrict opposition. And that is uh, something that we've seen in a number of countries and is a risk. So th there's nothing I would say that um, you would want to do to prevent people running for office and, and trying to get power, but we all have to as a society, as, no matter which country we live in, try to make sure that they cannot take down the safeguards that allow others to throw them out of office if they're, they're unhappy with them at the next election. As, a, as, as somebody uh, or as an organization which upholds democracy and democratic spirit, a, a very hypothetical question. If, God forbid, and I really mean God forbid, English Defence League was to become the most popular party in, in the UK, would you still support uh, them coming to power? Again, I'm so sorry, the sound is really breaking up, but you, you, you said something about a party in the UK. Yeah, English uh, Defence League, I was saying, God forbid. If they were to become the most popular party and they were to come into power, would you still support it? Well, what I would be uh, trying to work for as a citizen, and this is just me speaking, not the organization, because we don't do work here, and uh, so mm. the organization could not comment on them. But me as a citizen, I would be trying to make sure that I was working with others to ensure that whatever they, their views were when they were coming in, they could not do anything that would undermine democratic practice in the country, allow others to speak their minds freely yeah. and to try to ensure that they stayed within the law so that if the our fellow citizens w agreed with uh, with us, we could vote for a different party at the next election. I think, you know, your example is um, an important one, and there will always be uh, parties in any country that some somebody is either unhappy with or actually have genuine fears might uh, cause real damage to society, and we all should have the right to take part in debates and argue against that, and if, if we can and are able to, to vote for a different party that could get in power next time. And finally, um, Anthony, would you agree uh, with Churchill that uh, democracy is the worst form of government, but the best that we, um, we know of in terms of the ones that exist? I'm I'm really sorry. I cannot. Uh, right. There must be a problem with the microphone. Sure, no, no, that's the, that's uh, fine. No, no, no there must up. be. Anthony, uh, really a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so very much for being candid, and thank you so very much for answering all our difficult questions as well. Um, have a wonderful weekend ahead. Peace be with you. That's come back. Thank you. I heard that. <laughs> Ironic, Excellent. Ironically, I heard that. If you want to carry on, I'm very happy to carry on. But. Um, 
otherwise, thank you so much, and uh, and peace be with you as well. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you for joining Take us. Care. Have a lovely weekend. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Well, apologies to Anthony. I think this is not really uh, uh, like us to have a broken line, but we'll try to fix that for the next guest. Now, when we speak, and uh, you know the, this this question that you asked as well about the rise of the far right, it, that's an interesting one, isn't it? How do you combine this? How do you? Um, give the green light to that because ultimately what 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 is happening is that this is this is something that which is spreading, and we had the examples of Germany a couple of years ago. Then we had the elections in in in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, France was also with Marine Le Pen. Yeah. Th- this change in their language to fit into this this democracy uh, or the landscape of democracy. Um, if if that is something that is that is happening in the past, but then now we've seen with the likes of Donald Trump, we've seen the likes with, uh, you know, Viktor Orban, we've seen with the likes of you know Netanyahu, who were or members of his cabinet basically, were openly and blatantly saying the things that they want to say without any filter. Where does that lead us? Yeah. Absolutely. How do you? Hmm. Combine that. Let's put that question to our next guest, who is Teresa Pierce Lanella, uh, who is the head of electoral processes at International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you so much. And uh, that was a really, really difficult question. So I'm not sure I can answer <laughs> that one. But I have to just hope, and this is me saying it as a citizen, for, for you know, course correction over time. And I think your, your previous guest was, was maybe heading in that same direction. We just have to have to hope that um, mm. when things pendulate, that they, 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 can, they come back to some kind of, um, yes, humanity and, and a good place in the end. But um, that's, yeah. So do you think but, we're going, uh, the world is going through a cycle at the moment, just winning towards the yeah. right wing? So I, I um, my, my specialty, so I, I should say that I'm, I'm uh, re- calling you here from, from International Idea, which is in, in, in Stockholm, an intergovernmental institute. And I've had the pleasure of working with electoral processes now for over 30 years. So I don't know if it's a pendulum so much, but I've seen an extraordinary change um, over those years that I've been working. So when I began, I guess I began in the early 1990s working internationally with post-conflict elections, and there was this tremendous enthusiasm Mm. um, for democracy and and this just sense that that this was... Even the 2010s. Mm. Yeah, with the Arab Spring and all of that, yeah. Exactly, in Timor-Leste in the early Mm. 20s and so forth. But I think on the... Maybe I, I could just put one maybe good news story out is that I think if we compare, since I work with electoral processes, actually elections are being run reasonably well in most places. So I think the problem with elections or the problem that electoral authorities have is not so much the actual running of elections, which are are done reasonably well, but it's more the context in which they work in. And I think that's getting much, much tougher. And I work with those who, who organize elections and I can see that they're really struggling in this new environment. There's just more politicization of ele- elections, like just things like whether you should have out-of-country voting or not, or whether mm. you should have postal voting or not. And those things are 
become infected in a way that I don't remember from 20 years ago. So I, I am seeing a change in that sense. Um, since your specialty is, is, is with the electoral processes, um, have you been able to follow the latest election in Pakistan? And what are your thoughts on the uh, on how the election was held there? I think there again in Pakistan, the issue is is context and not so much. The, the Pakistani Election Commission is really, really well experienced. Mm. They have, you know, it, it, I think if there's one thing that Pakistan has, it has a very, very, very capable um, bureaucrats. But there the issue is, you know, political tensions and mm. your ability to be a candidate and a leading candidate being in jail. So it's it's. The, the, the issue, again, is, is not the election so much, but the, the context in which they're held. And that becomes a, a political issue, a societal issue, a societal conversation. And that's where you need leadership to look for, for ways to, to agree on how to disagree. Um, so, yeah. I, what but, do you... but actually, for the organization of elections, yeah. you know, people in Pakistan, they really do turn out to vote and mm, they have yes. a real um, history of it. And, and right. I think they take their voting very, very seriously. Mm. So from just the electoral process's point of view, um, mm. I, I, I have a real admiration for the Election Commission of Pakistan. Uh, looking at it more broadly, um, you mentioned there was this huge enthusiasm that we all had in the 90s and, and probably even later as well. What are your, your thoughts now on on, on the state of uh, dem- democracy and democratic process around the world? Ooh, that's a big question because uh, <laughs> the world is very big and different things are happening in different places. But I think sometimes we can see democracy a little bit as, as, a, as a garden and um, mm. uh, it has to be nurtured. It has to be taken care of. You have to take care of your, your vulnerable plants and so forth. And sometimes you might take it for granted until there's a drought year and um, your vegetables and flowers don't come up. And then you just notice what you have when it's missing. And I think I do see that when institutions are under attack, that that there is some kind of pushback that, that the institutions that have been taken for granted when, when they are undermined, somebody does show up to, to protect them. I'm not sure if I'm explaining myself well, but I do see that. So uh, just one example in Indonesia, a few years ago, the parliament tried to uh, curtail the, the independence of the election commission. It was actually civil society who pushed back on that and said, no, actually we need an independent election commission. So, so people do notice and, and you, you do see some course correction. And that's what I'm hoping that democracy has is, is a resilience. Because um, the thing about open conversation is it is open if, if, you, mm. if you have an open society. And so when things push a little bit in the wrong direction, somebody does notice and, and get upset, whether it's the people on the streets or whether it is behind the scenes. But um, yeah, I, I just have to hope that um, when our institutions are under attack, that, that other institutions or civil society or the media, uh, yourselves, for example, just notice and, um, mm. and, and yeah, and, and things are righted somehow. And that's also, I guess, where you need rule of law, um, where if, if things are pushed over an edge, that, that there's also um, course correction from, from that side. If I can ask you another difficult question, um, apologies for that. It is, I, I do agree, the end of the week, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we'll get, I, I don't know when we'll get an opportunity to speak to you again. Um, there is a view from the East that, one view from the East, that if democracy is for the people and the end result of any government should be to 
help the people, to uh, raise the standard of living of the people, uh, then why do we not accept the Chinese system of government, which has lifted millions, if not billion, people um, out of poverty? Mm, yeah, that's a really, really big question. And I happen to be a... a um a China scholar was my my beginning, um, so have had the pleasure of living in China as well. Um, I, yeah, good good question. I have just leave it at that. Um, I think when you ask, many people would prefer to live in a democracy, but I can also completely understand if you want your plate full. So I think I'll, I'll just leave that. But I, what I do think as a person who works with elections is if you are going to hold elections, they should be held well. Um, and I, yeah, I just, yeah. That's, N- nice, I, nicely left alone. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I'm just thinking of, of you know, Maslow's, sure. I think there is something, and this is just me It is, uh, yeah, and I, and scholar I agree. as well, it's, but it's it, a bit of a, a Maslow's staircase. It is, it is a difficult uh, question. It, yeah, that, um, it, there is no straight answer to that, probably. I completely understand that. And, um, and back to elections, which I know better, um, this is something that's coming up now with, with all the, you know, if you hold elections during a pandemic or if you hold elections during um, the extreme weather that we're having, mm. like how do you measure the, you know, the right to vote or how precious you see the right to vote against these other important public goods like public health or uh, and so forth. And so these are things that we have to measure as a society. But I think those of us who do me- uh, believe in democracy and who live in democracies, I think we do value that right to vote um, and we hold it very precious. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I've never been hungry in that way. So, so yeah. It's hard for me to judge on behalf of someone else. Can I? Um, I want to ask you about you know, the organization itself. So, just sure. just just to understand a little bit more. So, when there is elections in different countries and in, in other countries, how does that work? Do they reach out to you that come help us? We need some assistance, or do you reach out to them? How how how, how what's the process here? Yeah, interestingly, so we're we're an uh, intergovernmental institute, and uh, interestingly, the UK is not a member, even though Germany is, and France is, and mm. Canada and Australia. So just putting that out there. Uh, but um, we advocate for democracy, and that can be at the highest level. So we're at the UN um, and making sure that democracy stays on the agenda. We're in Brussels, so at the EU, making sure democracy stays on the agenda. So that's one way in which we work. But we also work in countries, really, at the very, very local level. You were talking about East before, but we work on the village level in Nepal and Vanuatu uh, and so forth. But I work with electoral processes, and then we do not work at election time because the best time to design electoral processes is in the post-election period. That's when you reflect on what went well and what went wrong. And then three or four years before an election is when you start the preparations. So then we work with, um, we have a beautiful curriculum package um, to train election officials that's used, it's been used by over 200 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's working with election commissions to build their capacity, especially, for example, if they want to expand their voting arrangements to different ways of voting or enfranchise people who are hard to reach. So that um, is work that needs to be done way before election time. So election year is actually not particularly interesting for me. It's those it's those preparatory years that, that I find really interesting. We call that the electoral cycle approach. So rather than seeing elections as events, you see them as a, a process, an ever-evolving um, mechanism to 
make sure that people uh, have their say. In terms of the electoral, sorry, electoral process again, um, what are your thoughts on the involvement of money and donors um, mm. in in that process? Um, that uh, is a is a discussion as we speak, uh, a big one, going right up to the Supreme Court in India. Uh, that is a major point of discussion and has been in the U.S. as well. What do you think? that uh, plays a role in uh, in defining the result of an election and uh, and do you think there's any course correction that is needed there that's a really really good question i should mention that india and us are both members as well so we know their their situations there um very very well and the thing is that money of course is an integral part of any election and democracy it 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 kind of allows political participation you need money for for campaigns um so that's it 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 isn't an ill in itself but the problem is 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 the regulation um that if not regulated or if regulation isn't enforced, that it becomes a way of exerting undue influence or um, of basically a, 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 a means of corruption. And so I think that linkage with corruption is, is why we're so worried about, um, about money in politics. Um, I think what, one thing that we're learning is that transparency, you know how they say sunlight is the best um, disinfectant, that transparency is really, really, really the key. And now that we're living in a digital age, it actually is much easier if we want it to be. And just to know how money is flowing um, is is one way of course correcting the, the not so good influences of, of money in politics, basically when it goes outside of, of of regulation. And regarding regulation, of course, that has to mirror what the country believes, whether you, I mean, these are political decisions um, or societal decisions, whether you believe in, in public financing or, or not. Um, I'm in Sweden at the moment, so I'm in, in, in and in this side of, of Europe, at least, there's a lot of understanding for public financing of parties. That's very, it is a very different way of looking at it in the United States. So, I mean, those are our cultural there's a cultural history to the way that you, you decide. But once you do have regulation, that regulation should be followed. And um, digital disclosure, digital re- reporting is one way to make sure that um, money is flowing the way that um, keeps a level playing field for, for all actors. Um, from, from my side, uh, you know, with, with the conflict that is happening in, in, in Palestine at the moment, a lot of people... Mm. In, as well, I'm, I'm speaking specifically from from the UK perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, as 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 we've seen on social media that people going up to their MPs, people going up to the parties mm-hmm. that they voted for years and years, if not their whole entire lives, and then those at the top or their MPs not basically lending them an ear or basically not mm-hmm. not really. F- hearing what what their constituents have to say or what 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 way they would like their mp to go or to vote how would you you know yeah. speak to someone from the next generation from those who are probably voting for the first time and seeing this this whole um circus play out in the last weeks and months that mm. there is hope in this system that you can you can create that change that you want. That you can influence. But Yeah, exactly. 
That's a good question. Well, how are you thinking about this yourself? I think if you say then it'll trigger something in me because it's so hard. Yeah. Like, how do you influence? Um, uh, giving them a, a sense of hope because, again, th- this is yeah. something that I pick up from 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 the people that I talk to, family, friends, you know, in, in my in my congregation as well, the younger generation who who who've reached that age that they want to participate in the in the in the mm. electoral process or the political process in the, in 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 their country, but they see what is happening at the top and they feel like you know what i th- i think i got, i got better ways to 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 get my point across yeah nobody's yeah. listening to yeah. I mean, do, do nobody's me, to give you a more specific example uh, you know <laughs> i have uh, written to my local mp for example about mm-hmm. the the horrendous events that are taking place in uh, in gaza at, at the moment and mm-hmm. i've written to him that and, and there was a recent poll actually uh, which uh, Uh, which stated that uh, the results were that 71% of the British public actually supports a ceasefire now. Mm. So I wrote him that and, uh, you know, uh, fell almost fell on, on deaf ears and, and you mm. got a very, very standard, um, you know, a political politician response to that. So yeah, so and this hostility is growing. I mean, if you if you see the town hall debates, if you see you know people going to their MPs or if their MPs in their area, it's not the 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 friendly chat anymore, isn't it? I mean, it's mm. it's turning into something which is not that great. Yeah, kind of uh, fraught and defensive yeah. and and um, and the frustration yeah. of the people is is coming out. Because yeah. again, for 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 me, for an average person who sees, who has a heart, who has children, who has a family, that if and if it's regardless on which side that is happening, yeah. it, it doesn't make a difference to me whatsoever. But the fact that my MP, who is supposed to be in Parliament representing my interests, is not doing that, that is frustrating for for the next generation who who, to be honest, to start off with, didn't have much. um expectations mm. yeah, so to like uphold a, these values and this is not just in the UK i mean this is an international mm-hmm. scale on 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 so many different levels and different countries um mm. and 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 that's that's the fear that i have that when when we have this this institution when we have this right this freedom this responsibility to shape the next Uh, to to shape this election to, to to shape the policies that that are going to be represented by different countries how do we I, encourage that next generation yeah i think what you're talking about is is feeling safe to engage and when yeah. you start feeling like you have to self censor or when you're nervous or or that it it um then then you lose that sense of of safety hmm. and i i i just i mean things are you know the times are different now but i remember what I've been active and an activist and so forth all my life. Now, now we're passionate about electoral processes. But I remember when I was like 14 or 15 years old, I had a social studies teacher. And she would um, ask us, you know, about the, the news. And at that time, um, it was uh, apartheid, for instance, or it was maybe a, a strike or it was um, something in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And then she would say, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And we'd have to design something. And I was just 15 or so when mm-hmm. I was able to, you know, write to parliamentarians for the first time. I went to my first demonstrations and, and made those um, placards a bit like the climate kids are doing now. Right. and went on the radio for the first time and so forth. And and 
what I've, when I think back on it, it was just like a safe space to just test those things. And when you test them, you can only learn to, to engage by actually doing it, but you need to have a safe experience when you do it. And what makes me sad about the, what you've just described is that if you do it and it doesn't work, then that doesn't make you encouraged to hmm. do it again. So either you have to feel like there's some kind of impact that it has um, or that you don't, you know, you, you have to feel better about yourself hmm. having done it. Um, and so that makes, yeah, so the way that you describe it and the way that you felt a bit despondent afterwards, that's, um, yeah, that doesn't sound, uh, that's, that's, not how it should be. That's so not I, how it should be. I, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let's end on a positive note. How's how's the weather in Sweden? <laughs> oh, that's definitely not leaving us on a positive note. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I sorry. The word slush. <laughs> it, it was a, it was a good day here in London. So I I oh, yeah. okay. I seen this double digits, 17 degrees yesterday. So I think yeah. it was yeah. it was great. Uh, well, another well, good thing is that it's been just such a pleasure. You're you're just a gorgeous um, host. You've got a great style. So that, thank you. That, which That's a one? Positive note uh, for me to end. Are you talking about me? I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that. Head of Electoral Processes post. at the yeah. International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, joining us from lovely Sweden. Therese, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Great to have you on. And uh, as uh, we say here on the Drive Time Show, peace be upon you. Thank you very much for coming in and have a great and lovely evening and weekend ahead. Thank you so much once again. Thank you so much. And peace be with you and your listeners. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. The the look the question. The, you you understand where I'm coming from? Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, because it's, it's been what a hundred plus days. Yeah. I've been to multiple protests. Yeah. I've seen the numbers grow mm. on the streets here in London, but I've also seen the 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 deafness, mm. the dumbness, the the apathy, the ap- the lack of yeah exactly. On, on, on the political elite. So yeah. you have this growing anger in in the next in in the gen, in certain generations, not in the next generation, but in in the in the public in general. Mm. And this is not something that is happening only on the streets in London. We see it in Washington. We see it in New York. We see it in Toronto. We see it, you know, across the globe. But then you think to yourself, well, they're going to do what they're going to do. Mm. What 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 is me? Uh, sitting here saying and shouting going to my MP on a daily basis what's that going to do? Nothing. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. This is a global phenomenon again. This is not something just here in the UK. I mean in the US there was a poll recently I think only a couple of months ago uh, again around the crisis in uh, in Gaza and the uh, and the, the results suggested that uh, most of uh, the uh, the respondents who are aged um aged uh, age 45 and over um, and are Democrats would still support Israel, but most of the people who are between uh, 18 and 35 actually support um, the Palestinian cause, uh, a free Palestine uh, and a Palestinian state. Uh, You see the schism in, in Pakistan, for example, in recent elections as well, where um, as our expert was mentioning, the turnout was pretty decent. Mm. A lot of youngsters uh, came out to vote, and they voted for the party whose leader is in in jail. Mm. And that was supposed to be a reaction to what the establishment there has been doing 
for the last few decades. So, yes, there is a schism. And, and, and like the example that I quoted of here at home in the you know in England, where 71 percent, again, according to a recent poll of the British public, actually supports a ceasefire. Yeah. But our MPs um, continue to um, to Pull not support us. Exactly. Uh, well, there is going to be another vote this week, um, they say. So, so yeah. I hope things change. But yeah, there is a schism, unfortunately. So democratic processes or any kind of processes of elections must be based on trust, must be based on integrity, must be based on justice, fairness, equality for all. That is something that I think we can all agree upon. So whenever you exercise your vote, it should be done with the consciousness that God is watching over you and will hold you responsible for your decisions. This is not something that I have said. This is not something that any other philosopher has said. This is from the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on his soul. And he said that you should vote for those who are most capable of discharging their national trust and are in themselves trustworthy. So it's not just about our role and our responsibility in exercising our right, this, this, this fundamental right that in so many countries people don't enjoy. But at the same time, this addressing those who are getting the votes, those who are standing for these elections to cause a change, to create that change in your society. There must be a reason why those, those MPs and those politicians stood for elections in the first place. And that's something that you should never forget. This life, yes, you might get elected or not. That's a different, whole different ballgame. But the fact that you have this integrity once you are in power, once you are elected, once you have the trust of the people who have voted for you, how do you exercise that trust? So in Islam, when we look at the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when we look at the caliphs, when we look at the history of Islam, not just during the time of the Holy Prophet, but also... Later on, the people who were put in put in charge, the people who were given responsibilities, the, the people who were elected to certain offices, how did they discard and how did they discharge their their responsibilities? Was it just what am I getting out of this? What is it that the people are expecting of me? Or was it keeping in line or keeping in mind that one day, as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said that you will be questioned about your flock. You will be questioned about your responsibility, the people who were under you. A father will be questioned about his family. Um, a, a ruler will be questioned about his, about his subjects. And a wife will be questioned about the, 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 the trust that uh, was assigned to, was given to her, uh, of, of her house and of, of her husband. The lack of this questioning, the lack of the awareness that God Almighty does exist, or the lack of you know, the belief in God, to be honest, is, is, is alarming, is something that is scary. And, and, and we believe, I believe, firmly you know, listening to His Holiness and what He has said over the past 20 years, this is the direction that we're heading to. That you... Your, 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 this impunity mm. of of just doing whatever you want. Who is going to question me if I'm at the top? No Absolutely. one's going to question me. But always remember, there is the Creator. There is the Lord of all the worlds. There's the Lord of Lords. And again, when we read the Holy Quran in the previous nations, this is what they've thought. What they've, you know, thought. Pharaoh thought there is no one better than me. Bring me your God. I am your God. He claimed to be their God. And 
I mean, they don't say we're God today, you know, the political elite or, or whoever's in charge. Again, I'm not brushing everyone with the same same brush, no doubt. But this is something that has happened in the past, and we are supposed to learn from the past. This is why the Holy Quran says over and over again that look towards those nations, not to to be afraid of God, but also to look at the consequences of your actions. And God lets it you know, go for a certain period of time. He gives you that respite. He gives you that time that maybe if you want to correct yourself, do it. Maybe if you want to correct yourself, do it. There's a nice, um, there's a quote from actually from a movie which I saw long before I became an imam. And <laughs> of course. It, it said that a, a society is falling, right? And, and every time that society falls, it says, well, up to here, it was okay. Up to here, it was okay. It's okay so far. But it's not the fall that matters, does it? It's the impact. Yeah. So when we fall, it's fine. We can fall. We've been in a downward spiral globally, I think, for, for a long time. But it's not the fall that matters. It's the impact. When you hit the ground, how hard do you hit the ground? And I think as, as a humanity at the moment, I'm coming back to the same thing over and over again, this conflict. It's just nagging on my personal, personally on my head so much mm. that humanity has fallen so so hard and, and so crazily on our, on our head that it's unbelievable. For some people, it's 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 unimaginable to to see, or to believe that we could have ended up here as as a global family. Correct, absolutely, and and you know I think it is because of these weaknesses that we've been talking about in the democratic system. Islam actually doesn't recommend any particular no. uh, form of system. So. Um, I was reading um, this book, Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues, written by the fourth head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, may Allah have mercy on his soul. He wrote, uh, he wrote, and I quote, In order to establish and guarantee international peace, Islam has a word of advice for the contemporary politicians. Islam lays extraordinary stress on introducing absolute morality to all spheres of human activity, politics being no exception. No political system is mentioned in Islam as the only valid system against all others. There is no doubt the Holy Quran speaks of a democratic system where the rulers can be elected by the people. But it is not the only system recommended by Islam, nor can it be the fundamental prerogative of a universal religion to choose a single system of government without due regard to the fact that it is not practically possible for a single system to be applicable to all regions and societies of the world. Democracy has not developed enough, even in the most advanced nations of the world, to reach the stage of polity, which is the ultimate political vision of democracy. With the rise of capitalism and the building of extremely powerful machinery in capitalist countries, truly democratic elections cannot be held anywhere. Add to this the growing problem of corruption and the coming into being of the mafia and the pressure groups. One can safely conclude that democracy is not in safe hands even in the most, even in the most democratic countries of the world. Then how can it be suitable in the third world? Unquote. So, you know, pretty much the argument that, uh, uh, you know, the, the discussion that we've been having yeah. um, 
throughout the hour that, yeah, it's it's definitely one of the systems, but it's certainly not the perfect system. And uh, it is therefore not the only system that a one size fits all cannot apply to the whole world. Now, we're asking you a question. We forgot to mention this uh, on at the beginning of the show. Which election do you think will be the most important one in the year of 2024? Is it going to be the U.S. elections, the U.K. elections, the Taiwan elections, or the elections of the EU? That is something on our Instagram story. So go to Voice of Islam UK on Instagram and leave us a comment, leave us a ca- uh, leave us your vote. We're going to go to the five o'clock news, and then after that, we'll be back with the second topic. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. Thank you very much for sticking around and welcome to the second part of today's program. Now, in this part of the show, as I said before, we're speaking about Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. May Allah be pleased with him. And he wasn't just the second caliph and the second successor to the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, but he was also someone that we know within the community as Hazrat Muslimah, meaning the promised reformer. What exactly that means and why we believe him to be that and you know, a little bit more on this. We'll speak about this. Um, but it was his his father, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, on whom be peace, the promised Messiah, who secluded himself basically for, was it 40 days? Uh, he prayed to God Almighty. He prayed for a sign to be uh, bestowed on him. And as a result of this period of 40 days where he secluded himself and worshipped God Almighty extensively, there was a, a prophecy, a revelation that he received. And we're going to start off with that revelation. And we're going to speak about this just very briefly. Read out the words, the exact words that uh, um, were given to the Promised Messiah peace by God Almighty. Again, so we believe him not just to be the Promised Messiah, he was also um, the, the Imam Mahdi, he was also a prophet of the, the prophet of the age in, in perfect loyalty and obeisance to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Not someone who came uh, on his own as an independent prophet, someone who achieved all of this and achieved the, the rank of prophethood based on his abilities. No, it was due to his being a perfect follower, a loyal uh, servant and, and, and an obedient servant to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that God Almighty conferred this favor on him. So the, ver- the, the revelation and the words of the revelation, of course, translated into English, that he received after having prayed for a sign were as follows. So the prophecy um, is as follows, and I quote, I confer upon thee a sign of my mercy according to thy supplications. 
I have heard thy entreaties and have honoured thy prayers with my acceptance through my mercy and have blessed this thy journey. A sign of power, mercy, nearness to me is bestowed on thee. A sign of grace and beneficence is awarded to thee and thou art granted the key of success and victory. Peace on thee, O victorious one. Thus does God speak so that those who desire life may be rescued from the grip of, from the grip of death and those who are buried in the graves may emerge therefrom and so that the superiority of Islam and the dignity of God's word may become manifest unto the people and so that the truth may arrive with all its blessings and falsehood may depart with all its ills and so that people may understand that I am the Lord of power and I do whatever I will and so that they may believe that I am with thee and so that those who do not believe in God and deny and reject his religion and his book and his holy messenger Muhammad, the chosen one, on whom, may, on whom be peace, may be confronted with a clear sign and the way of the guilty ones may become manifest. Rejoice, therefore, that a handsome and pure boy will be bestowed on thee. Thou wilt receive a bright youth, who will be of thy seed and will be of thy progeny. A handsome and pure boy will come as your guest. His name is Emmanuel and Bashir. He has been invested with the Holy Spirit and he will be free from all impurity. He is the light of Allah. Blessed is he who comes from heaven. He shall be accompanied by grace which shall arrive with him. He will be characterized with grandeur, greatness and wealth. He will come into the world and will heal many of their disorders through his messianic qualities and through the blessings of the Holy Spirit. He is the word of Allah for Allah's mercy and honor have equipped him with the word of majesty. He will be extremely intelligent and understanding and will be meek of heart and will be filled with secular and spiritual knowledge. He will convert three into four. It is Monday, a blessed Monday. Sun, delight of heart, high-ranking, noble, a manifestation of the first and the last, a manifestation of the true and the high, as if Allah has descended from heaven. His advent will be greatly blessed and will be a source of manifestation of drive of divine majesty. Behold, a light cometh, a light anointed by God with the perfume of his pleasure. We shall pour our spirit into him and he will be sheltered under the shadow of God. He will grow rapidly in stature and will be the means of procuring the release of those held hostage. His fame will spread to the ends of the earth and peoples will be blessed through him. He will then be raised to his spiritual station in heaven. This is a matter decreed. End of quote. 
So it was on the 12th of January 1889 that this prophecy was then fulfilled in the person of Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed, the son of the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. In 1944, presenting the background of this prophecy, he himself said, fully 58 years ago in 1886 in this city of Hoshiarpur, in this house that my finger is pointing at, an unknown, solitary man from Qadian, not known fully even to the people of his own town, Qadian, seeing the opposition that the people had towards Islam and its founder came to this humble place that was really a spare room of a much bigger house to present himself in front of God, in solitude, to worship him and seek his help and assistance. He stayed aloof from everyone engaged in earnest prayer for 40 days and God bestowed upon him a sign after these 40 days of prayers. The sign was that not only would I fulfill these promises that I have made with you, with you and make your name reach the corners of the earth, but in order to fulfill this promise with even greater splendor, I shall bestow upon you a son who would be blessed with some special attributes and qualities. He would cause Islam to be spread to all parts of the earth. He would make the people understand the fine points of divine knowledge. He would be a manifestation of God's mercy and grace. And he would be bestowed the religious and worldly knowledge needed for the dissemination of Islam everywhere. And God would grant him a long life till he would attain fame the world over. And that's exactly what what happened. In the lifetime of uh, Hazrat uh, Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed, may Allah be pleased with him, there are so many things. I think we, we do this every single year, isn't it? So yes. we have a special day within the community where we talk about not celebrating the birth of, of the second mm-hmm. caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community because, again, uh, the birth itself... The birthday. The yeah. birthday itself has little to no significance whatsoever. But the prophecy and the, the sign that was given to the promised Messiah, Hazrat mm-hmm. Ghulam Ahmed, and the fact that it was fulfilled not just through the birth, but also the different qualities that you read out in the beginning. The f- 52 qualities. 52 qualities. And how he fulfilled all of those qualities within his lifetime. And, you know, the comments, we're going to go through some of them that people had after he passed away as well. So I, I think the beauty of all of this is that all of this was done in broad daylight uh, in front of the world press. Hmm. And, you know, this is not an event we're talking about uh, which happened thousands of years ago or even hundreds of years ago. This hmm. is something which only happened 100, 130 years uh, or so ago. And, um, and and at that time, uh, the press, uh, you know, the world uh, and India where he was born had a vibrant press. And the Promised Messiah, uh, may peace be upon him, publicized this particular prophecy well before the birth of this particular son. Hmm. He prophesied this in 1889, and and the birth uh, of the son didn't happen until 1991. And in fact, to the point that... Uh, they, uh, 1891. Uh, sorry, 18, did I say 19? I'm, <laughs> I beg your pardon. 1889 and 1891. Um, and uh, there was actually a lot of hue and cry when a son who was actually born in 1890... Uh, Bashir the first, as he is known as, passed away, 
And there was a, a huge hue and cry among uh, the opponents of the promised Messiah at that time who said that, well, you know, you, you, you talked about a son who's going to have a long life and is going to have all of these qualities. Um, what happened? This son has died. And he said, no, there, there is a time limit, which is which is which the God and, the, and this son will be born. So he knew that the, the prophecy was from God. And uh, and as I mentioned earlier, he 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 heavily advertised that. Uh, and it was for everybody to see to the point that he was actually criticized when uh, the first son was actually uh, the first son actually passed away. And again, so this is something also going back even further. Maybe we should have mentioned this in the beginning as well. Going back to, all the way to the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where we also find narrations and prophecies that when the Messiah will come, he will marry and he will have children. Mm. So uh, it's it's. It's the celebration of the promises and the fulfillment of the promises of God and the revelations mm-hmm. and the prophecies that we celebrate on this day, not, again, as I said, the birth day or the birth of a specific person, of a specific uh, individual. Now, there's so many things that we can cover, as I said, this this time of uh, almost 50 years just being the leader or the, the caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and the achievements that he had during that time. But what we want to do specifically in in the beginning of the show, we also want to link it a little bit to what is happening in today's day and age, meaning the the conflict in in Palestine um, and how all of that actually started and, and what the reasons behind that were and also what His Holiness's view was on the creation of you know, Israel as well as Palestine and what needed to be done. In order to do that, we're going to speak to one of our Imam guests who is going to join us very shortly. But if you want to have your say, if you have any questions about this topic or or, or the ones that we were talking about before, do give us a call on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Um but as I said, before we get to that specific um, chunk of the program, we're going to speak just very briefly about some of the things that he's done at a very early age. Now, some of the things that we do when we're at the age of 19 or 15 or 16 are completely different to what this this person, this man had done. Just to give you an idea, um, at the age of 19, he offered himself for to dedicate his life to to serve the community and 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 soon he formed an organization for the sharpening of intellect and under its supervision he started a, a magazine of the same name and the the purpose of that magazine was to create kind of um, a weight or a work of religious education for the children of 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 the of the community specifically the reason being was that if you have children who have the basic knowledge, the basic framework of what they believe in, what their religion is all about, why we are part of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, what differentiates us from others, then they will be able to serve Islam in a much better way. He also created and split the community once he was uh, elected as the caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community Democratically, can we say that? Oh, hundred percent. Democratically elected yeah. as as the caliph of of the of the promised Messiah and of uh, as the the leader of the community. Like we established in the previous segment, there is no exactly. one size fits all democratic <laughs> system in the world. <laughs> exactly. So he then 
we often mention the auxiliaries of the community again so you have the women's auxiliaries organizations you have the men's which are split into 7 to 15 years of age 15 to 40 years of age and then 50 uh, 40 years and above to disseminate the work a little bit to 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 make it a little bit easier for these different groups and these different age groups um to to help propagate the teachings of Islam and so on and so forth but as i said we'll come to this in just a little bit after we've spoken to our first guest for this part of the program joining us now is no stranger to um the voice of islam listeners actually usually not at this time but early in the morning imam nuruddin jahangir khan is with us on the line assalamu alaikum and welcome to the draft time show Peace be upon you and thank you for having me on. Peace be upon you as well and thank you very much for joining us today. Now, Imam Nuruddin, I want to take you back um, over half a century maybe, maybe even before that. When at the time of His Holiness, Hazrat Mizah Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, this whole United Nations were coming together and this, this the after World War II, um, We've spoken about the Balfour Declaration. We've mentioned this many, many times. It's just basically a text uh, of a few couple of lines, which proved to be something that changed the course of the history and the course of the the world and that part of the of, of the world uh, at least. Has his did His Holiness say something about that Balfour Declaration in specific? I mean, <clears throat> this is going back even further in history when we go back to the 2nd of November 1917. This is when the um, the foreign uh, secretary of, mm. of the British government at the time, um, Mr. Balfour, he, he wrote actually a letter to Lord Rothschild who, um, you know, basically the, the whole purpose of that letter was to say that, you know, we are actually going to facilitate the um, establishment of a, a nation, a, a home nation for the Jewish people. And that was basically like it set in motion the whole um, purpose of the premise for the for the Zionist movement to then, you know, um, start to establish the state of Israel, which later then um, came to um, fulfillment within in Palestine in 1948. But anyway, the Hazrat Muslim Maud, Hazrat Mirza Bashir bin Mahmoud Ahmed may Allah be pleased with him, he spoke on a number of occasions about um, this, these kind of agreements and this, these kind of declarations which are being made. And he said very emphatically that, you know, the the attempts that are being made right now to split the Ottoman Empire um, are attempts not actually not only against that, but also against the honor of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and also against the, they're also a matter of, you know, defending um, Islam, because he said that this is something that, despite all the differences of, of the Western nations, Russia and America and all these other great nations, they they've actually come together and agreed. Um, to you know, really destabilize that area, and to and to split it up as much as possible. And he even called it al kufru millatun wahida, that the disbelief has become like one nation. You see how the, all those nations who um, you know have been fighting one another, when it came to Islam, they all gathered one, uh, together mm. and you know became like one people and one body, and you know tried to fulfill that purpose of of, um, of splitting it up. And so, as a Muslim, may Allah be pleased with him. On a number of occasions, he has said that this is something which um, we have already seen that these Western nations have promised promised uh, many a time that they will grant something, but they've all they've always betrayed. And he said that this is something that will happen again, and that the Muslim nations actually um, 
should should be very wary of this and should instead instead of listening to them they should start to think about unity and put all your differences aside and you should unite because this is the only way and without prayers we we cannot um you know um you know tackle this this big um problem which is um which is the muslim nations are facing right now and we are being split up and islam the muslim nations they they are weaker once they are disunited and this was his, his the main goal and the message that the muslim or does has given to the muslim nations and um and spoken against uh, these kind of declarations which were made and these kind of promises which were being made to the you know the different um whether syria whether it was you know iran or whether it was um lebanon or, or even palestine in this case as well and he said that you should really be careful of, of what they're promising you and you know instead of listening to them you should be uniting as muslim brothers indeed um thank you very much for that now uh, imam nuruddin i also want to speak as i said moving on when when the talks were in uh, in place about creating an israeli state what was yeah. at that moment I mean, through I believe it was Sajid Zafullah Khan, may Allah be pleased with him, who was uh, also involved in in this process. Through him, what was his advice? What was his view in regards to this specific conflict? What was the message that he sent to to some of the Muslim countries and some of the Muslim representatives um, that were that were dealing with this at at, at the time? It's a very interesting question because um, if, if you remember, if you remember, that was a time when Pakistan was also, um, you can say, within the fray as well. Yeah. And he was the first, uh, you know, they were the first representative in the UN, and he spoke up. And you know, with, with all those other Muslim nations sitting there, none of them could actually do anything to, to you can say, anything meaningful to prevent this establishment of, of Israel and you know the rights being usurped of the Palestinian people there. But the moment he came and spoke. Uh, in the UN and and um, and uh, and described the issues um, that were that were you know the fa- that they were facing at the time. All of them stood up and they they listened to everything that he said, and the, the words they had to say when they they realized that this was something that not even none of them could have conjured up themselves, despite them being the Muslim nations themselves, despite them um, having the responsibility of looking after their own people. So Tuliza Fulakanta um, was the one who actually spoke up. And you know, really woke woke the world up and showed them the, the you can say the two faced approach or the hypocr- hip- uh, hip- hip- the hypocrisy that they were actually um, showing the world in in the way that they were dealing with the Palestinians at the time. And he really showed them that the way that the Palestinians are being treated right now, and the way that is you know the Palestine is being um, distributed or you can say uh, dissected hmm. um, under this under this approach. He said he showed in every every single aspect of it there was injustice towards the Palestinians, whether it was um, whether it was to do with agriculture, whether it was to do with trade, whether it was to do with even um, the plots of land that were being uh, allocated to the to, whether to the Jewish areas or to the or to the Palestinian areas. He showed them that this is the this is the the promise that you are giving to the Palestinians, and this is how you are treating them. How dare you do this? And if you go forward with this, then you will sh- clearly show that you guys have no integrity. This is the, we cannot let this be the legacy of the, you know, the League of Nations as they failed already, but let the UN is already failing in this as well. Hmm. So despite, um, despite opening their eyes to all these injustices, 
they still continued to uh, to go ahead with that plan. And as a Muslim, the Shaykh Mahmoud Ahmed himself, he 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 knew that this was going to happen, and he kind of gave advice to the Palestinians at the time, and he told them that you know, this is going to happen, but you must not let you give up your lands, you must not sell your homes, you must not do this because you will end up uh, in the long term you're going to lose so much more. And you know, this is something that we've seen already um, happening. Um, if we look at the you know the current map of the of Palestine and Israel. Bit by bit, Palestine has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Mm-hmm. And it's now, even in the West Bank, you can see with the settlements being um, being being um, being formed in those in those areas, it's now just pockets of, of Palestinian areas now. And this is all because the Palestinians did not take did not heed those words of the Hazrat Bashir in the and they did sell their lands and they did sell their homes. And now they they you know they they're regretting that. So this is the something which was foreseen but unfortunately was not uh, heeded. Indeed. Well, Jazakallah for that. Uh, Imam Nuruddin, how in, in general, generally speaking, well, we're talking, the topic is the service to Islam that uh, His Holiness rendered. I mean, we're looking at 50 years of just being a caliph of, of this community in specific. But it wasn't just just his community that he was looking after. I mean, we believe that yeah. a caliph is not just there in light of what the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Muslim community, mentioned that if you think that your empathy, your humanity, your feelings are just for your own community, then you have not understood what what your role and responsibility is supposed to be. Just in, uh, in, in the same way that His Holiness these days, today, is telling the community to pray for the entire world because ultimately we share this entire planet. It, just you know, at the end, very briefly, if you can speak about his the, the pain, the, the 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 sympathy and and the emotions that he had towards the Muslim world, and you know what what in your eyes would be you know something that he left behind for the Muslim world to 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 look at to to take to take heed maybe. It's a very like deep question because it's so many years. We have a deep question Friday today. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the there's, so, there's, there's so many aspects as you as you can imagine because over so many years of service towards humanity, um, the Muslim world has really been a beacon of light towards um, not just the Arab world but also to the world at large. Mm. His concern for the Arab world was was it was because of his ex- extraordinary knowledge and awareness that he had for the dealings, the way that the world is working, and the way that the threats are coming from all angles. He knew that there was something um, you know, brewing from a long time before the world even actually saw the face of uh, the different troubles and different revolts and different, um, um, you can say, the travesties that, that came to pass later on. But back to the, you can say, the, the concern for the Arab world, he actually wanted, he, he, because as a religious leader, he saw things through a religious angle as well. Mm. And he said that he always you know, brought it back towards the religious teachings of Islam. And he said that whatever is happening, we cannot do, we cannot act in, in, uh, against what the, what the Quran is teaching us. So first of all, one of those very fundamental aspects of, of attaining peace in anywhere around the world, he said that there must be justice. And to have justice, you must be fair with all nations. And that is something he knew that was not happening. So that 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 lack of justice is something that he 
Um, he advocated for that justice everywhere that he went, and he knew that there was a big turmoil in the, you can say, in the in the Arab world. And he said that, you know, we have to find our answers through our prayers. And without the prayers to God Almighty, you know, the the Muslim nation will be nothing. It will be, it'll be weak, and it will be mm. dissected as as we as we have seen already. So his his concern came from that deep knowledge, a deep understanding of what is going on around the world, but also that knowledge, where did it come from? It came from God Almighty, and it came from the teachings of Islam and the teachings of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And wherever he went, wherever he traveled around the world, he continued to advocate for peace, he continued to advocate for justice, he continued to advocate for harmony. And that is something which um, the world was witness to. And you can see you can see in different aspects as well. You can see in the establishment of the state of Pakistan as well, the role that the Ahmadi Muslim uh, community played yeah. in in bringing about the justice for the for the Muslim people. Despite you know now the Ahmadis being uh, declared as non-Muslims or outside the pale of Islam, the 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 role that the the Muslim played in in even establishing the the rights for the Muslims and having their state. Uh, and having a place where you know you can be free to express your religion, that was something that that cannot be um, uh, what's the word you can't you can't understate it. Mm. It's something which which even the 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 non-Ahmadis they should they should recognise, and they do. A lot of them do recognise it and say, look, if it wasn't for him, maybe we wouldn't even have a state of Pakistan right now. Mm. And the injustices which were being carried out against the Muslims. Uh, maybe they would have been con- uh, continuing to to this day. Yeah. So again, there's there's so many things we can we can discuss. It is just a short show. I know I know you have other people to speak to, and um, you must go on with your with your show. But sure. I mean, we can always uh, speak speak about further aspects another time. But sure. uh, I think that should suffice for for this time. Wonderful, it uh, indeed does. Imam uh, Nuruddin Jangi Khan, Zakala, thank you so much for for joining us today and uh, for answering some of the questions. Uh, great to have you on. Assalamualaikum. Peace be upon you. I think one of the things that uh, Imam Jahangir was referring to was um, uh, the speech that uh, Sir Zafrullah, who was the first foreign minister of Pakistan, made in uh, the United Nations Mm. right after the creation of Pakistan in 1947. So this is uh, when Israel was uh, created in 1948. And this was obviously under the, um, with the prayers and under the guidance of uh, uh, the second caliph, uh, Hazrat Muslimad, who we're talking about this um, this afternoon. Um, so, in in that address, um, Sazafullah stated, and I quote: uh, "This is, is uh, an excerpt from his speech in the United Nations Security Council." Um, and I quote: "Today, it is said only the poor, persecuted European Jew is without a home. True, and it is further said: Why then let Arab Palestine provide him?" as Arab Spain did, not only with a shelter, a refuge, but also with a state, so that he shall rule over the Arab. How generous, how humanitarian. The United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, as we know in Recommendation 6, one of the unanimous recommendations urged that the General Assembly take up this question of refugees and displaced persons immediately, apart from the problem of Palestine, in order to afford relief to the persecuted Jew, so that there should be an alleviation of this humanitarian problem and an alleviation of the Palestinian problem. What has this great and august body done in this respect? Subcommittee 2 made a recommendation and drew up a draft resolution on that basis. First, let those Jewish refugees and displaced persons 
who can be repatriated to those to, the, to their own countries be repatriated secondly those who cannot be repatriated should be allotted to member states in accordance with their capacity to receive such refugees and thirdly a committee should be set up to determine quotas for that purpose the resolution is put forward for consideration shall they be repatriated to their own countries australia says no canada says no the united states says no this was very encouraging from one point of view let these people after their terrible experiences talking about the jews let these people after their terrible experiences even if they are willing to go back not be asked to go back to their own countries in this way one would be sure that the second proposal would be adopted and that we should all give shelter to these people shall they be distributed among the member states according to the capacity of the latter to receive them australia an overpopulated small country with congested areas says no 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 canada equally congested and overpopulated says no the united states a great humanitarian country a small area with small resources says no that is their that is their contribution to the human to the humanitarian principle but their state let them go let them go into palestine where there are vast areas a large economy and no trouble they can easily be taken in there that is the contribution contribution made by this august body to the settlement of the humanitarian principle involved amazing and of course this amazing. is back in 1948 that is so amazing in uh, in a speech which is documented you can go to the united nations website mm. and this is a speech which actually um uh is 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 listed there and is a historical speech with you know all the other representatives including um uh including those of Canada Australia and uh, and the United States not to mention um, the others yeah. were were sitting there um and he ended the speech which uh, with actually a prophecy and i would like to um to read that uh, sure. read out uh, that as well which came uh, towards the end of that address uh he said that a sarzar fulahan and um and i quote our vote today if it does not endorse partition does not rule out other solutions our vote if it endorses partition bars all peaceful solution let him who will shoulder that responsibility my appeal to you is do not shut out that possibility the united nations should seek and strive to unite and bring together rather than to divide and put asunder the representatives of the united states made reference to the prayer and the wish that i expressed at the end of my statement to the ad hoc committee i again utter it humbly sincerely and earnestly may he who controls all hearts and knows their innermost thoughts and designs who alone can appraise the true value and foresees the consequences of all human action in his grace and mercy so so guide our judgment that what we decide here today shall promote and foster the peace prosperity and welfare of all his creatures jews arabs and the gentiles alike and shall rebound to his glory forever our last cry is all praise is due to god the lord of all the world um so uh, you know he uh, i mean uh, uh, exactly can i say more uh, really <laughs> they did not listen so that was on the on one side and then on the other side you had you had the muslims i mean again so th- there's a collection of two addresses by by his holiness 
Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed, the second caliph of the Promised Messiah. Um, that that has been collected. So these two addresses have been collected and put into a book form. It's called the Turkish Peace, and that basically in those two speeches and those two addresses, he sought the preservation of the rule of the Sultan of Turkey following the end of the First World War, and with with foresight again understanding and we believe it's it's divine divine knowledge divine information divine knowledge that that he that he received he then not only offered a very detailed very layered analysis of how this objective could be achieved but also told the muslims very clearly very categorically that if you want to have your voice heard mm. if you want to be recognized in the global sphere and and the political arena then you need to do something and that is come together Absolutely. have this unity which again his holiness has been talking about even today um three caliphs down the route down the line that if you have and and they have long term objectives they have long term goals and if you want to have those fulfilled then you need to combine yourselves you need to uh, unite yourselves so that you can be seen as equals because at that time look we're talking about was 50s 60s 40s even um these were small little states mm. on one hand and you had the likes of the uk the the, the british which ruled massive the sun planet. never set exactly mm-hmm. that empire was was as you mentioned where the sun never set you had the americans on the other hand you had the french you had the defeated germans but you still had uh you know europe to that side and then you had this sick man at the bosporus yeah the sick man of europe the yeah. sick man of europe who was just living uh, his last days yeah so naturally people were out to get them absolutely and yeah. if they had not come together if they had come together at that point uh, things would if have been if only better different. sense had actually prevailed there's one yeah. more quote that i would like to quote um or one more expert excerpt of that particular speech uh, given by sazaf lakhan uh, to united nations security council back in 1948 and i quote now we are told you must accept either partition or nothing but is that so is that the only choice how much genuine support has the scheme of partition received in the ad hoc committee it received the support of 25 delegations some of these 25 delegations said they supported the partition plan with a heavy heart others said they supported it with reluctance why because there is nothing else this shows this shows that the general assembly as a whole is at least not happy to commit itself to this so-called solution it is said that if partition is not accepted there will be no room left for a solution now listen to this on the contrary if partition is accepted the fatal step will have been taken the arabs and the jews will have been set by the ears and never again will there be a chance of bringing them together mm. far too many unfinished vendettas will then bar the way if you delay and do not take the fatal step you still leave open to the arabs and the jews the chance of a conciliatory solution through which they combine and work 
It is not that if you do not take a final decision today, your jurisdiction to decide anything is barred. It means that neither of these two solutions is acceptable and that something else must be found. The responsibility remains with you. Do not throw away that chance. Do not close a door that may not be opened again. The United Nations must find a solution which is not only just and fair, but which has the best chance for success as regards the largest number of Jews and Arabs in Palestine. End of quote. So, I mean, just listen to these lines. Mm. Uh, really prophetic words. If you delay and do not take the fatal step, you will leave open to the Arabs and Jews the chance of conciliatory solution. But if you take this fatal step, the Arabs and the Jews will have been set by the heirs and never again will there be a chance of bringing them together. Aren't we seeing that in 2024? Mm, could, could not have fit more than it is today. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. And that is the reason why he was the promised reformer. If the world had taken heed and had listened, maybe we would have been in a different position. So, uh, as, as, as you know, before you mentioned this quote, I was reading and I was, was talking about this, this, these two addresses that are now collected in a book form called The Turkish Peace. And in that, again, so he's talking about the general state of the Muslims, the, the Ottoman Empire after the, the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the role of the Muslims, the role of caliphate. And he says that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community accepts that His Royal Highness King George V is the ruler of the British Empire and that I, a humble individual, am the Khalifa or the Caliph of the Promised Messiah on whom be peace. But despite this at the current time and as for and for as long as there is no conflict with the interests and dignity of the British government, our full sympathies are with the Turkish Sultanate. Although there are differences in our beliefs, their prosperity brings honor to the name of Islam, which is of common interest to us both. Same thing, what His Holiness mentioned a couple of weeks ago in his sermon, that th the reason why you have this sympathy, this love for your Muslim brothers and sisters, although, again, look, the, the entire Muslim world does, does not consider us as Muslims. Yeah. But the fact that they call their Lord Allah, the fact that they profess love for the Holy Prophet, peace mm. and blessings of Allah be upon him, is reason enough for us to put our lives on the line if need be, yeah. to protect the interests and, and to, 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 to help our, our fellow Muslim brothers and sisters around yeah. the world. Not at the cost of anybody else, I must, no, uh, no, no, no. I, I must emphasize. Of Absolutely. Yes, in, the, yes. in, the, in the true spirit of uh, global brotherhood, in the true spirit of bringing peace to this very troubled world, uh, in the true spirit of bringing peace between different creeds and different religions. And again, so when, when he is, he's addressing the Muslims at that point, he says, with this sincere proposal, I wish to say that all, all the respective members of this conference, there was a conference happening in Paris at that time, that if you are prepared to unite over this point and are ready to take action, then I believe this will be fruitful, not only for the sake of the cause for which this gathering has been convened, but also in bringing about blessed results in the future. All of you should understand that the greater the cause, the greater effort and sacrifice it demands. And then he says, again, something that applies to the world and the situation that we live in today as well. While it is true Britain has committed itself to hand over control over certain 
of certain regions of Turkey to various allied nations, the fact remains that the people of the country do not approve of this. And they have been given reassurances that their opinion, as long as it does not lead to civil unrest, will be honored. Therefore, there is no justification to hand over Turkey to the control of such nations whom they do not wish to be ruled by and are anxious about how this will affect their religious sentiments. The Muslims should also abstain from taking steps that may create misunderstandings amongst the general public or cause passions to run high, as this would result in the focus of the government being diverted to questions of internal administration. Your behavior matters. How you conduct yourself matters. How you present yourself matters. And if the cause, which has always been humanity, has always been unity, it's always been for the betterment of the people, if you distract from that cause, then what do you think is going to happen? Same thing that is happening to Chaos. Chaos. The second matter that needs to be dealt with for the success of this endeavor is to set aside the issue of the Hijaz altogether. So Saudi Arabia, we've we've done that, and I think we've we've come to this point. And he says, and he continues, a standing committee should be formed which should work towards raising support for the Turkish cause, hosting conventions, lectures, fundraising events, and issuing tracts and handbills while funding a committee in England is not going to be of any benefit. Instead, it will be more profitable to carry out a streamlined campaign across the entire world. We live in an age of region, reason in which people demand arguments in support of propositions. It is therefore important for us to collate as much evidence as possible in support of this cause and use reason to convince those responsible for deciding this question. Use reason. Don't just put your points across. It took four and a half years to end the recent war through violence. And though the use of force offers an easy resolution against one's enemies, it is much harder to change the conviction of people through reasoning and persuasion. The chief difference being that though the sword needs only be struck against a few people, arguments need to be presented to thousands, rather hundreds of thousands of people at a time. Hence, there should be a systematic and organized strategy to accomplish this task, and it should be executed with the same seriousness of purpose as is found in other nations. Expending energy on futile efforts is not benefiting of any sensible person, and it is better not to toil in this way. And he goes on and on and on. And the last point, the last thing that I want to mention here is, he says that the only way to achieve success in this matter is by shifting the opinions of the nations participating in the Paris Peace Conference, especially the United States and France. If their stance can be changed, the issue will be resolved. But before any such attempt can be made, the question of why these nations bear such enmity towards Turkey has to be addressed. It is only by transforming the motives that drive their decisions that success can be attained. As of now, Germany, which initiated the war and during the course of the fight and fighting committed every type of inhumanity, has only had to give independence to a modest territory that, is gained, that it gained from the French as well as a small part of Poland. The Germans still rule over their own country. The Austrians, who also played an integral role in starting the war, have lost various territories that demanded their independence, but they too have kept control over their own country. The Bulgarians also, despite their disloyalty, broken promises and acts of cruelty, still administer their own affairs, and there are even talks underway to provide them with an access route to the sea. Then he goes on to talk about Romania, and then he says the reason given for this is the genocide... uh, No, actually... 
sorry, apologies. Turkey, on the other hand, here we go. Turkey, on the other hand, who, according to the Europeans themselves, fought valiantly under German pressure, showed restraint, restraint and did not commit any atrocities has been declared unfit to govern not only its colonial territories but also itself unfit to govern you 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 cannot govern yourself you've been doing it for centuries but you cannot govern yourself instead it has been considered necessary for it to be occupied and ruled by foreign powers the reason given for this is the genocide in armenia and muslims are hastily trying to respond to this accusation which so far has little evidence to support it History has already shown us how in Spain Christians would go into mosques, insult Islam and be killed by zealots. And then these acts of provocation would be presented as examples of Islamic extremism and be loudly condemned across the continent. Hence, any such allegations made by the Allies need to be properly investigated. And he goes on and on and on. Again, these are two full speeches which have been cut down as well. But it's... It's one-to-one the same scenario that we are going through at the moment. And it's a simple solution. Your behavior, your unity can create all the difference that, that, that we need. And by the way, um, I think important to mention here that he wrote this at the time or said this at a time when uh, thousands, if not millions, across India and in many other Muslim countries across the world were actually uh, protesting against the the fall of the caliphate in yeah. Turkey, whereas he was talking about geopolitics there. He was yeah. talking about what what are you talking? What are you thinking? The whole Turkish land is being taken away from Turkey. Turkey yeah. is not being even give, being given the right to govern themselves. Um, so everybody, while everybody was totally distracted on a on a. Uh, on what they thought was a deeply religious issue for them, rightly or wrongly, hmm. he was talking about real politique. He was talking, he was giving sensible advice. He was giving real advice to Muslim leaders, to leaders around the world, and, and to, to, to all sorts of leaders, actually, across all creeds, to be just, to make sure that, you know, if, if justice uh, is being meted out, um, in some way or the other to other European countries, then the same treatment should be meted out to the Turks. Um, I think one more thing that I that I want to mention, we are coming up towards the end of the, the show today, is is the number of books and, mm. and, and lectures that, uh, you know, he was, uh, as was prophesied, uh, was uh, full of uh, full of spiritual and worldly secular knowledge. And that showed in uh, in the twenty thousand pages that he wrote, and that comprised of the books, the speeches, the lectures, the sermons, which have now been published in book form, and um, uh, and and they come to about one thousand four hundred and twenty-four. Hmm. No ordinary number there. So you know the books and the and his speeches and lectures and sermons in total, I repeat, come to one thousand four hundred and twenty-four. I mean, just any prolific writer would be uh, would uh, would put a shame hmm. with that sort of number, uh, and the and this has actually been collected in um, in a set called Anwarul Alum, which has thirty eight volumes, totaling twenty thousand three hundred and forty pages only. 
And that is, uh, again, so apart from that, the commentary of the Holy Quran, I think that is probably the, the how would you, the, the, what was it, the word, the magnus opus? Yes. Of, of his, the of grand his, exegesis, the yes. grand exegesis of his life. I mean, the knowledge and the depth into which he goes at that time. So again, we're, we're not talking about someone who had huge libraries at his disposal who had uh, the best of best education in, in no, the no, world. Who, who didn't even go to high school. Exactly. So that, <laughs> keep <laughs> this in mind, exactly. he, he was not... He, was not, <laughs> he didn't go to Oxford. He or, didn't go to Oxford <laughs> or Cambridge or whatsoever. Yeah. This is all based on the revelation that we mentioned before, that God Almighty took that responsibility on himself, that I am the one who's going to teach him. Mm. And he mentions this in, in if you read the commentary, of the, if you mention that exegesis, in, in many places he's mentioned that God has put this in my heart. Mm. Or this explanation, he talks about what the world thinks, what other commentators think, Western as well as Eastern, Muslims as well as non-Muslims, what they think about certain verses and certain passages of the Quran. And then he says, well, I disagree with that because God Almighty has put this into my mind. Mm. And if you read it, it makes perfect sense. Now, in the first half of the program, we were talking about leadership and global elections. And there's a very beautiful saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that says, shall I not inform you of the best of your leaders and the worst of them? The best of, the best of them are those whom you love and they love you. You supplicate for them and they supplicate for you. And the evilest of your leaders are those who hate you and you hate them. And they curse you and you curse them. In this part of the program, we were talking about the son of the promise, the son of the promised Messiah on whom be peace, the promised reformer, Hazrat Mizabashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed. And all the things that we've mentioned, as well as Imam Nuruddin, who was with us on the line, it is in light of that narration of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that he can be classified classified as one of the best leaders because he loved not just the members of his community, but he had genuine love and genuine sympathy for all of mankind in his heart. He supplicated for them every single day, day in, day out. This is a man not just responsible for his own family, but also his spiritual family, which was spread all across the globe. And the human family, of course, doesn't matter if you belong to the community or not, you were included in that as we went along. And there are so many comments that have been made um, after his passing about the services that he rendered for the sake of Islam, for the sake of the humanity. Um, it's impossible for us to go through all of them, especially when we only have a minute left. But that is the kind of leadership that we need to have in the world today, where we do not only look at our family, at our loved ones, at our country, at our citizens, of course they come first. But don't forget, we are sharing this planet. And if we want to live in peace and harmony together, then we have to look out for each other. Today's research, today's program was researched and produced by Kafi Ahmed and Munahal Nasir. And we would like to say thank you to them. Thank you very much to Shariat as well in the tech room back there. Tomorrow morning, inshallah, God willing, the SML team is going to be with you at 
10 a.m. The Weekend World with Hamad Khan is going to join us on uh, join you on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. And the Draft Time Show will be back on Monday. Don't forget, if you want to have your say or want to give us some feedback, you can call us or send us an email from all of us here at The Voice of Islam. Jazakallah for listening in. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>